I don't know about you, but I've personally always been fascinated, fascinated by, by, by the seven wonders of the world. Now, not so much the natural seven wonders or even the new seven wonders. I'm talking about the real, ancient, the Greece's list of the great seven wonders. Now, if you don't know what these are, here's a cheesy pick. Here's a, here they are. These are the seven wonders, the great pyramids, the hanging gardens, the temple, the mausoleum, the lighthouse. Now, this is a perfect list of what man has considered its most magnificent of achievements. This is supreme. This is the supreme of mankind's great builds. And yet, do you know how many out of all of these are still around today? One. One. The pyramids. Anybody seen the pyramids lately? They look like crap. They're not doing so hot. Okay? So to try to make this applicable... What then does this mean for our attempts at constructing beauty, security, the everlasting, the things in life that each of us are working to achieve that can't be moved, basically? A place of safety or permanence and prosperity. Now, even for those here who are here this morning who are particularly maybe not religious or even not Christians— Dare I say, what you are searching for most with all of your pursuits is a kind of divinity, a kind of divinity, that being ultimate satisfaction, which can't be taken away. Isn't that why we work so hard to, to, to get that degree? Or we work so hard at saving every dime, or we work so hard with, with promoting you know, the, the need to vote? or even laboring to ensure that our children have a better life than we did. So if if that is any of us here, and I believe it's actually all of us, then today we're in for a very real treat. So if you've been with us in the book of Hebrews like we've been talking about, then you might remember that this is a transcribed sermon. This is not a letter. This is not a journal entry. This is a recorded sermon. And chapter 12 What we're finishing today is the unknown, mysterious, wildly brilliant preacher's conclusion. This is his crescendo. This is his return of the Jedi. And he, who we call the stranger because that's what he is to us, starts making his strong application points. He knows he's wrapping up. Thus, so are we. Again, for the, for the preacher, for the stranger, you can just feel him trying to throw everything in like somebody's in the back of a church going, let's wrap it up. You can feel it. You can feel its movement. So again, including today, we are only one of three talks away from finishing this outrageous and challenging book. Again, and if this is his conclusion and you're new here, or you're visiting, you've only caught the last couple of chapters and missed some of the chunkiness of the book, then you're here on a very good Sunday. You're here on a good Sunday. So then for everybody, let me just for a moment paint in very broad strokes what this entire chapter looks like. Because what we have to notice with Hebrews chapter 12, and you can write it down in your little journal journals, what we have to know is there's immovable pedestals. It has immovable pedestals, four pedestals of exhortation for right doing. For right doing. If you guys remember stuff like a couple weeks ago where it says, you know, throw everything off and run. Or it says, make sure your legs are straight and your path is straight. Those are the type of ideas for right doing. And then there are four pedestals for right 
knowing, for right knowing. That's us today. Very, very practical um, chapter it's been, but, but it ends on a very purposeful note, very purposefully. And so, collective church, what these pedestals are holding up, and I'll just say this to everybody, has the possibility to change everything about your life. Everything, including mine. They show us a truer, more sturdier wonder in this world, an indestructible wonder, by inviting us to look at mountains. It wants us to look at mountains. Some of you nature nerds are like, oh, what? Right? Like, Bryce, right? Bryce already has a brown beanie on. He's putting on an REI jacket or whatever. Put your analogy away. So it tells us to look at mountains. Look at the mountains, it says, and it's great conclusion. It says, but very specifically, look at two mountains. Two mountains. One of them leads to the indestructible and safety and permanence that we want, and the other leads to certain doom. So with your permission, before we talk about how that happens, or we like bandersnatch and like find our own choose adventure of which mountain, before that, what I'd like to do for the next few moments is explain these two mountains and what they represent, if that's okay. And if you look at your verses, it easily divides it up for us. Verses 18 through 21 is mountain one. Verses 22 through 24 is mountain two. And the rest of the verses is just what in the world we're supposed to do with these mountains. Okay, verse 18. Let's get crack a lacking. Verse 18. For you have not come. The stranger makes his argument through a negative claim. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not, not, not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And verse 21 Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So without even telling us the title of what mountain this is, his audience would have known exactly what it was. He is speaking about the mountain that is called Mount Sinai, most vividly seen in Exodus chapter 19 of the Old Testament. Friends, bear with me, but words cannot express this ineffable importance of this mountain and basically what took place at its peak. First, know that this is a literal mountain. This is a literal mountain, a place we can see, smell, touch. It is made up of mud and sediment. I brought a couple pictures of some people who, who are taking their best guess at what this mountain is. So they think this is Mount Sinai. There's a photo of it. There's another photo of what they think. And I like this last one. I like the guy in there. I really is... <laughs> I thought it was a great photo. It was great. So these are ideas of what people have really, really kind of assumed what the mountain was. Now, what I want everybody to really, really grasp and understand right here is what the Israelites, the Hebrew church's ancestors witnessed there is, again, indescribable. I mean, just imagine for a moment, if you will. Bear with me. Let's get on the magic school bus. Imagine the blackest of clouds billowing from the top like a volcanic eruption. And then it talks about the sound of trumpets. Anybody been at an orchestra where they're warming up? Imagine that times a thousand, and that metallic noise is just blasting down the mountain. 
And the entire thing is just in a blaze of fire like the Lord of the Rings Mount Doom. It is absolute fear. Or how did the stranger say it? Darkness and gloom and a tempest. It is a place so extreme that even if a little random animal, if Bambi happened to walk by it or scurry by it, all of a sudden, dead, dead. It's, a, it's, 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 in other words, God's access is denied. Free access to God with this is denied. As you can see, worship during this time was not very Hillsong-y, if you know what that is, or Bethel. or It wasn't pleasant, it was not uplifting, or it was not emotionally exhilarating experience at all. This is a foreboding, terrifying, intimidating experience. And it was under that black sky and in that voice of brass that God told his now free from enslavement community, because you're mine and I am yours, live like it. From that black mountain, live like it. Here's how you do that. And he says, you be holy because I am holy. Okay, how do we do that? With the law, the 10 commandments. Probably many people's here's favorite thing. The 10 commandments, he says. The law being a certain way of life that will set you apart. This way, God says, we can be together. The problem was that none of us have yet to be uphold even one of the 10 commandments. In fact, show me one person in here who could just do the first one. Exodus 19 says, you shall have no other gods. That being the first one. The law, as it's called, aren't rules to a better life. It is the better life. But what we see, what it means to be fully human and fully obedient and ethically and morally right, it challenges us. So much to the point, I love what Paul in the New Testament says in his response to the law I think you'll dig it from the book of Romans. You'll see, when he came to know the law, it's very kind of amusing, but very, very visceral. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what God gives them at this massive mountain known as Sinai flatlines them. But from the base of this mountain, God's people took their laws and they became, God, he took their laws and they became nomads. And they left Egypt in search of a promised land, a city that would belong to them. Pay attention to this. They wanted something that would belong to them. Somewhere where they could settle a place they could raise their kids. What does that sound like? Permanence, peace, prosperity. All of their hopes centered on a Jerusalem. A literal translation means a city of peace, a place of fulfillment and stability. How nice does that sound in 2019? In our current day and age, fulfillment and stability. See, Christian or not, we want our own Jerusalem a permanent place of peace. That's what they were looking for. And the stranger, the author, knows this. So then he goes on to say, verse 22, but you have come. But you have come to Mount Zion, excuse me, Zion, and to the city of the living God, and look at this, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There is no you have to work for it. There is no you have to travel for it. There's no you have to find it. There's no search for it. You have come. You're there to Mount Zion. So Mount Zion is number two. Just for a little contrast, I did a little side-by-side, a little quick graphic. See what I did this morning? I did this for you at 4 a.m. No joke. So if there's a misspelled word, blame Ross. Right there. Just joking, don't blame him. This is just a little contrast of the seven contrasts of these two mountains. You see, Mount Zion, the place in the Old Testament that King David claimed, I mean, even the word, the name Zion, eventually was a standard way of referring to the site of the temple, the city of Jerusalem as a whole. So so how you could say Jerusalem or Zion is in the same way that we say Los Angeles or LA. It's the same thing. Now, of course, he is not talking about a physical, literal mountain of Zion or even the earthly city of Jerusalem. He's contrasting the physical mountain of, of Sinai with the heavenly, the heavenly. Now, I know as a church, we haven't done much study on heaven or hell, so I'm just going to give a little teaser. But after Easter, what we're excited about is we're going to do a short series on the afterlife. We need two weeks on heaven, two weeks on hell, because we need to discuss the eternity. We need to discuss the eternal. So that's coming up. So we're not going to be able to get into it fully right now, what he means by the heavenly, but that is coming up. But by saying our identity as citizens of eternity is to untie any earthly identity here and now whether that's to Los Angeles, Culver City, Palms, for sure not Palms, you know what I mean? (laughs) Joking, to political parties or church denominations, if you're tracking. But I really want us to see, this is quite a difference. The difference between Sinai and Zion. Worship and song and angels and heavenly glory, free Chick-fil-A. It's just this amazing place. The assembly of the firstborn means those who receive an inheritance, which is every believer. You might find this line interesting when he says, spirits of the righteous made perfect. That sounds like some spiritual, some spiritual words here that may not fully land with us, but what that means is that those who are now lame, those who are now disabled, or those who are now enabled, will be running. So it's to lack nothing either mentally or physically or spiritually. And all of these as answers to the nomadic tendencies we all have. He poses these as the answers to our nomadic tendencies. These contrasts are just lurid. Sinai is darkness. Zion is God shining. Sinai is God unapproachable. Zion is God approachable. And this is essentially what the book of Hebrews has been doing every single Sunday we've gathered It is constantly throwing out their stark, stark contrast of supreme Jesus and everything else. It wants us to ask, is Jesus better than this in our life? Every time we're faced something, is Jesus more than that? Jesus better than the angels, the priests, the prophets, the blood and temples. And today, today is the last great contrast of the entire book as it forces us to visualize these two Everest, one which represents the old covenant, law required, and one which which represents the new covenant, law fulfilled. Now, thank you for that fast rant of trying to get these mountain descriptions out there. 
But before we go any further, I feel like we must shoot the elephant in the room. We must. Doom and gloom God versus happy pappy God. Right? Right? Let's be honest, Angelinos. An angry, wrathful God is out of date. It is out of fashion. I mean, how many of us Christians are here in 2019 saying, thank Betty White that we are not on that side of the cross. We are not with the God of the Old Testament. How many of us go, praise God Almighty, we've dodged that OT deity faith bullet. Some here possibly going as far as new atheist, Dr. Richard Dawkins. I've read this quote a bunch, but it, it makes quite a punch. When he says, The God of the Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. See that jab there? Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a uh, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, uh, pestilent, where am I at? Megalomaniac, sadomasochist, caprocious, malevolent bully. I lost my place a bunch. Sorry. Take that out of the podcast. I lost it. But let me just say this. I want to push this even further so that we really behold the contrast here. Agnostic Charles Templeton doesn't offer much of a character reference, but this is important as well. He says, the God of the Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, is utterly unlike the God believed by most practicing Christians. He is an all-too-human deity with human feelings, weaknesses, and passions of men, but on a grand scale. His justice is, by modern standards, outrageous, and his prejudices are deep-seated and inflexible. He is biased, vindictive, and jealous of his prerogatives. Right? Friends... Could this be your understanding of the biblical God today? Even as I describe the black billowing clouds of Sinai, you go, yeah, he seems like a monster. He seems very untamed. Even the Talmud of the rabbinic and Jewish studies has a legend where it depicts God holding this very mountain over the people's heads, threatening it to throw it on top of them if they do not accept his law. where that is more allegory and opinion, the notion of holy fear is uncomfortably real. It's uncomfortably real. Just for a moment, just remember, if you were to flip back through the pages of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah catches a glimpse of God in his absolute perfection, and his only response is, I am coming apart at the seams. The angelic seraphim, whose name literally means blazing ones because you can't even look at them, they are forced to cover their eyes before God. Or even the pillars of the temple, God's holy house, rattle. They rattle. They're not even human, and they rattle with quaking fear. To not fully seize its reality only lessens our faith. All of this forcing us to ask, what happened to change God? What happened to change God from the Old Testament to the New, from Sinai to Zion? What happened? This is the answer. Nothing. 
nothing. Of course, author C.S. Lewis helps ground this point. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we need most and the thing we want to hide from. He is our only possible ally and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. Who here this morning needs to think again? They're still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. Nothing of God has changed about him or his character. Nothing. So again, I, I wonder how many it would surprise for me to proclaim as fact that there isn't a wrath-slinging God of the Old Testament and like a Tom Hanks God of the New Testament. I wonder how many it would be like, what? The God on top of Sinai is the same God at the center of Zion. So then, what gives? What gives? What does this have to do even with the, the longing, the human longing for permanence, peace, and security? Everything. Everything. But before I get there, if I could have your attention, because I need to give a bit of a word of warning. I have to. Especially those considering right now who are giving up or considering giving up on Christianity. In a room this size, it's really not that far-fetched to think that some here might be in that spot. Or even on the church. Remember, that is the audience of the Hebrews, people who are considering giving up on Jesus. The also group I want to talk to is those who are and must be and should be considering following Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, to know this truth, what we're about to go over, and to reject it has eternal, as well as temporal, but eternal ramifications. Meaning, the book of Hebrew poses this argument. It poses an argument from lesser to greater. It goes like this. That God's people then constructed their lives, their wonders, on what they thought was eternal wonders. Which, like our wonders of the world, turn out to be in ruins. And they rejected this invitational, invite, glorious thing from Moses and the prophets. So our author asks, how much more dire then, or tragic then, to reject Jesus? It says it exactly like this in verse 25 of Hebrews 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, if they did not escape, when they refused him, who warned them on earth, Moses, the prophets, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. God's speaking then so great Man's sin at that time and to this day, so grave, they were begging for God to stop speaking. Can you imagine that? His, again, the metallic voice like a trumpet coming down the mountain and you can see just the millions of Israelites going, stop, I can't bear it, stop. How insane is that? I think it's interesting though that there are so many people here today who've probably come far and wide to want to hear God speak. Many are showing up today because I want God to speak into my life. Again, though, I don't think that hearing God's voice is the problem. Look at verse 19. 
So hearing God's voice is not the problem. Verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Again, I will bet big that our problem isn't hearing God's voice. I believe for many of us, it's heeding his words. Those are, those are micro forms of, a, of rejection. So many of us, like frogs, jumping from lily pad to lily pad, wanting to hear what feels most comfortable. Well, this church ain't it. They talked about abortion this morning and an angry God. Well, I'm going to lily pad over here. This friend group ain't working for me. I'm going to lily pad over here. Rarely does God speak only just pure, affirming, agreeable, comforting words. What's that New York pastor Tim Keller's like, famous quote? That if your God agrees with everything you want to do, it's not God. So then please, 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 as a dying man to dying men and women, if the Holy Spirit calls you today, there is this pulling, can I encourage you? Don't let anything take you back. Come all the way to Zion. Come all the way to God. Come all the way to Jesus. I've seen too many people in my 21 years of ministry let neglect, unbelief, tradition, impatience, and fear drive them to continue on in their restless, nomadic journeys as they search for a more manageable, agreeable, tame, sanitized, domestic God. And LA knows this very well, don't we? Right? A God who can be found through crystals, a God can be found through enlightenment, nature, burnt toast. It just, and this is where people are going to hate me, it just doesn't exist. God interacts with you or with I on the basis of two mountains, period. That is it. On the basis of Sinai or on the basis of Zion. You can basically say, God, on Sinai, I want you to interact, I want you to look at me, and I want you to judge me based on my work. That's Sinai. The other mountain says, God, look at me and judge me and base and examine and look at my heart, basis on verse 24. And to Jesus, three very powerful words. And to Jesus, the mediator, to Jesus, the intervention of a new covenant, of a new way relating to God and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Wow. Friends, this is why both Sinai and Zion behold our same God, not because God changed his cosmic, grand, perfected holiness, but because Christ substituting death shrouded us in cosmic, grand, perfected holiness. Where Abel's blood, if you remember the classic first homicidal tale in the book of Genesis, where Abel's blood cries out from the dirt, retribution, vengeance, justice. Christ's crimson blood speaks a better word than that because it cries out clean, spotless, white as snow. <laughs> then only the faultless could touch the mountain. 
then only the followers could. Now Christ tells us, go to him. Claim that presence. Go. The breach between heaven and earth has been healed. So now, collective church, when God speaks to you or he speaks to me or speaks to us through his word or through church or through sermon or through prayer or through an exhortation, etc., it need not frighten us where we are at the base of the mountain saying, no more. It need not seize us or make us second guess if he's good. It should refine us. Look at verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. These words are from the Old Testament book of Haggai, and he's given a commentary on it. He's saying God will let pass through his finger all that is there except what is eternal. And this phrase, verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, that, that's things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain, that which is eternal. When I was a kid, we lived in Sumter, Oregon. Anybody heard of Sumter, Oregon? Nobody. I, you have? Because I told you about it. That's why. No, here's the reason. I mean, it's a population 150. It's gross. This is the place that I drove around as an eight-year-old buying my mom's cigarettes up and down the streets. My mom listens to the podcast. She's going to hate that. <laughs> But this is that small of a town that everybody's okay with it. But this is a gold town. This is a gold town. And my sister and I, and you'd go down to the stream and you would just pull up handfuls of mud. And if you just let the water fall through your fingers, you would see gold flakes throughout it all. They weren't big, but it was enough of a sparkle of a glitter. You're going, there's gold in them waters. It was enough. In fact... We thought we had millions of dollars as kids, and we got those, you know, your mom's like spaghetti colander things, and like, (laughs) but what you're doing is you're letting the unnecessary fall through so that what is worth its weight in gold would remain. This is what the stranger is talking about. He's telling them that God shook the earth and it rocked the Israelites. But God will eventually judge not just them, it says, but every soul, Christian or not. Hear me on this. It is a future-minded promise in the hopes of a present-day actualization. Beckoning the question to all of us with everything we possess, every relationship we have, is Jesus better or more supreme than these? I feel like every week we ask, I ask, the very same freaking question over and over again. What is our permanence? What is our security? What is our peace? And this morning, again, I was just looking at it going, yeah, again, right? And then I just remembered and I was reminded by the Spirit of God that these are the questions of our life. Our answers to these drive us. What urgently implores us today and now is to discover what we are building. What we're building upon. Are we building the Babylon gardens? They will not make it. Are we constructing our own fire festival? (laughs) I got a fire festival illustration in. I just had to get one in. 
Nailed it. Are we advertising like a party off the hizzy chain when it's just cold cheese and cold bread? It's a great documentary. Watch it later. Give you anxiety. So in closing, in closing, how do we find what's shakable? Casey, how do we find what's shakable and it's masquerade as the unshakable? Allow me to pose some questions as we wrap this up. Take these to your discipleship group. Take these to your, your our response time, but they're very simple. This is how we find what's shakable versus unshakable. If, 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 if our spouse, that promotion, our children, our lifestyle, our comfortability, that friendship, our independence, our motherhood, our health, our creation, and our art. If that was gone tomorrow, how would you interact with God? If that was gone tomorrow, could you still worship? If that was gone tomorrow, could you wake up in the morning and go, God is still good? If all of that was gone tomorrow, would your identity be in ruins like six out of the seven wonders of the world? The basic and simple invitation of Hebrews is to make Jesus Christ your primary source of everything. If some of you are in shaking times right now, life just sucks. Life is harder than you want it to be. I, I know we do not understand fully, but I'm telling you this. It is mercy. It is mercy. If our life is built on a faulty foundation, then it is God's loving kindness to show us before it is too late. And if we are moved by this conclusion of the book of Hebrews to reestablish our trust in the work of Jesus and the goodness of a holy God, then what could be right now possibly the darkest chapter of your life could become the turning point for your entire eternity. Hebrews challenges to live in light of that which cannot be lost, the unshakable kingdom, the unshakable king, the unshakable reality of his everlasting love and his supreme holiness. There's this beautiful hymn which has a, a small line that says, these all shall perish stone by stone, but not thy kingdom nor thy throne. So today, in the next few moments, evaluate. I need to evaluate. And if we evaluate rightly, this is how you'll know. How am I going to evaluate rightly? Because there's only one, one, one response. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. That's the conclusion of a conclusion, of a big conclusion. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This morning, we encourage you to sing in awe and reverence. I don't care if these speakers burst into chickens or catch on fire. Something happens here this morning. May we sing, lifting our arms, shouting out characters of God, coming to the carpets, and joining in the festival of angels. Verse 29, and I'll end with this, knowing with full assurance that our God is a consuming fire. He could have said anything about God. Our God is a big old pillow. Our God is Dr. Phil. Our God is blankety blank. And the stranger's just preaching. He goes, no, our God is a consuming fire. 
Christians take that to the people on the side for prayer. Christians take that to the communion tables up here in the front as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because what those words mean is is a quote from Moses when he said, God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Some people are like, what? Like a spouse for a spouse's love. That is his jealousy. And so when we give ourselves to way to more shakable things, God radically broken over it. He has made a way. The veil has been removed. Go to him this morning evaluating, am I worshiping the unshakable God or am I worshiping shakable possessions and shakable pursuits? Amen? Let's pray.